Thanks, Myra. Uh, keep that open. Let me pray, and we'll look at that together. Father, we do thank you for these words of yours, and we ask that you'll open our hearts to them this morning in Jesus' name. Amen. Back in 1983, you might be more familiar with this story than I was when I heard about it a little while ago, um, but the German newspaper Stern published an exclusive article, um, an explosive exclusive, in fact, because they had acquired Adolf Hitler's personal journals. Has anyone heard this story before? Um, no? So there you go. You're with me. Um, Lynn's nodding. She was there at 8 o'clock. She heard it then. Um, now, there's, a, there's, an, I don't know, there's an account, uh, a, a wartime account of how Hitler lost contact with one of his most trusted generals who was taking somewhere for him 10 heavy chests. And as the story goes, that those heavy chests contained 60 journals that Hitler had written, 60 journals uh, which were his personal diaries. Um, now, a man by the name of Conrad Cujo found the boxes, and within those boxes, he says he found 60 diaries, 60 personal diaries of Hitler. Here is Conrad, I think, with the diaries. And so he did what anyone would do. He contacted the newspaper and tried to sell them. So back in 1981, he contacted the newspaper, and they were quite interested in the story. They said, wow, we want to hear about this. And so they brought him in. Of course, uh, it took them two years before they were able to release the stories because they had to negotiate a price with him, which was quite expensive in the end. Uh, they also had to verify that these documents were real and not just some big hoax. And so what they did was bring in a couple of experts without making it obvious what they had found because what they didn't want to happen was for some other newspapers to find out what they had and then come and trump them with cash and take away this guy. So they kept it a little bit quiet. They brought in a handwriting expert and they compared the handwriting in the journals with the handwriting of other documents that Hitler had written. And the handwriting expert concluded, yes, this is legit. They brought in a historian who also said, yes, this is legitimate. And eventually they paid four or five million dollars to Conrad Cujo for the journals, which back in the 80s was a fair bit of money, I suppose. Uh, then the newspaper sold the rights on to um, the Americans, the French, the British, the Spanish, everyone. Right? They sold the rights on, and then they published it in 1983. But two weeks after publication, what did they find out? It was a big fake. It was all one big hoax. Conrad Cujo, as you can see here laughing, and well he might, wrote the diaries himself, all 60 of them. He wrote them himself, and he had a friend who put him in contact with the newspapers who had set up a vault of memorabilia, which contained other telegrams from Hitler that had been written by Conrad Cujo. So when you matched up the handwriting, it was a match, of course. Uh, however, not particularly close to what Hitler's actual handwriting looked like. And when it got released, of course, the few experts they brought in didn't represent the grand consensus. And everyone else had a look and was like, hang on, I don't think that's right. Here's another document here. And of course, it was one big hoax. Credit to the guy. He wrote 60 journals. I mean, good on him. That's a lot of writing to do. But events that he talked about never even happened or were in the wrong year. Uh, none of it was real, unfortunately. Now, we're, we're here. We're reading the Bible this morning. We're looking at Romans, which is one book among 66 in the Bible. How do we know that Christianity is real? How do we know it's not just some big hoax that someone made up? Someone wrote some journals. How can we be sure that it's real? And that's the question that Romans 10 uh, is addressing for us this morning. Um, now, when you're talking about whether or not something's real, there's a couple of options that you get presented with, particularly when you think about Christianity. People say there's two options that you can believe. 
The first is, or the options are the, the foolproof method or the leap of faith method. They say the foolproof method is that you need to test every single aspect of it and prove it all. And once you've done that, you can therefore be sure that it's true. The other option is, well, you can't really ever know everything. So just take a leap of faith and God will catch you. All right, those are kind of the approaches that we get told that you need to take when it comes to dealing with whether or not Christianity is true. But I want to put to you that there's a bigger problem with those two methods. And that problem is that they are not the only methods available. In fact, um, they're not even methods that we would use to investigate pretty much anything in life. Okay? They're not satisfactory for determining whether anything in life is true. For example, you, who, who's, um, just put your hand, humor me, put your hand up if you're sitting down today in a seat. Now, when you came in today, which of you went to the seats and thought, oh, let's have a look at this here. I'm just going to test the uh, structural integrity of that there. I'm going to actually, I'll take it out to my truck, my workshop in my truck outside, and I'll, I'll put the steel to a stress test. Who did, who did that? Checked the nuts and bolts, made sure the fabric was seated properly, that it wasn't a fake chair, a hologram. Did anyone do any of that? You just came in and sat down, didn't you? Looks like a chair. It's probably a chair. All right. Uh, good. Okay. Um, on the other side of the coin, who else came in this morning? And as you walked through the doors, made sure you kept your eyes firmly shut and wandered around for a while. I better not keep my eyes shut while I'm wandering on the edge of the stage here. And then just sat somewhere and hoped that a chair would catch them. Anyone take that approach this morning? No, I didn't see anyone fall down on the backside. So obviously not. Um, those are the extremes that we get told we've got to use when it comes to Christianity. It has to be one of those methods. But those are not the methods we use for anything. Why must we use them to look at Christianity? Okay? You see, we never approach life with a stringent measure of you've got to test and know every single little thing about it before you can believe it. It's not even a reasonable method to determine if something is scientific or not. It's actually based more on a philosophy that got put out there uh, hundreds of years ago. A a philosopher said that um, it's actually impossible to truly know anything. The only way we can know is if we test repeatedly. However, your first, he also says that the first time you test something must be disregarded and not considered at all because it is outside the laws as you know them. So you can't look at that. So what then happens is you can't prove anything because every time you test something, it's the first time and you must disregard it and not count it. And obviously his philosophical stance is disregarded because everyone can see through it. Um, but by the same token, we know that things happen. If I was to go and get a basketball from the other room and throw it very hard against the window there, what might happen? It would break, wouldn't it? Would you be surprised if the window broke? Not really, because that's what happens, right? Uh, many years ago, I was um, a student minister at a church, and uh, the church had a hall with some huge, big glass windows in the hall. And uh, we... We were playing basketball in the hall because some of these kids quite enjoy playing basketball. And one day, someone threw the ball quite hard and it struck one of these massive windows in the middle. Guess what happened? It shattered and there was glass everywhere. That's right, out into the garden. And there was a big cleanup job and that was very not fun. A couple of weeks later, we're playing basketball again in this hall. And there's five of these windows. We've broken this one already. Now we're moving on to this one. And the ball has been thrown even harder directly again at the middle of the window. Now, I don't know why we kept playing basketball, if this was going to be the case, but we did. Uh, It hit the window in the middle, and what happened? 
Nothing happened. There was this massive boring sound and the basketball was like time had slowed down and the window started shaking and we're waiting for it to explode and the ball sort of bounced and bounced again. It seemed to take a minute between bounces and we're all standing there. No one has breathed in what feels like an hour and the roof was kind of quivering because it hit the wall, the window that hard, but nothing happened. And so we said, cool, let's do it again. No, we didn't do that. What would have happened had we pegged at the window again? most likely would have broken, right? Because that's normally what happens, okay? There's well enough proof to know what happens without having to prove it every single time. Now, what happened on that occasion must have been some kind of fluke. I don't know. But when you throw a basketball hard at a window, it normally breaks, okay? When you sit in a chair, what normally happens? It normally holds you. Uh, It's fine. We trust the chair, and rightly so, okay? There's so many things in life that we trust implicitly as we ought to because we don't need to prove every single thing about it. Anyone bought any milk today or this week? Maz, what sort of milk? Full cream milk. How do you know? Where, where did you buy it from? From Woolies. And they put the label on it, full cream, did they? How do you know it was full cream? You don't know because you didn't inspect the cows, did you? Because you trust Woolies to, that they're so full. And you trust the Australian Consumer Commission or whatever they are, that they'll, if it's a rot, they'll call it out, right? We trust it, and rightly we should, because we don't need to go and inspect the cows being milked and see the milk homogenized properly and then whatever. I don't even know what process it is. But we don't need to do that to know that what we buy in the jar is, in fact, full cream milk, okay? Now, have a look at Romans chapter 10, verse 5. For Moses writes about the righteousness that is based on the law, that the person who does the commandments shall live by them. But the righteousness based on faith says, do not say in your heart who will ascend into heaven. That is to bring Christ down or who will descend into the abyss. That is to bring Christ up from the dead. All right. So here we have two options when it comes to truly knowing God. And the first one is to try and do it all yourself. Okay. That was the basic idea behind the law. If I'm going to have a relationship with God, I've got to do it all myself. And the law says you cannot. It shows us that to do something like that is futility. You'll never achieve it under your own steam because we are stained by sin and we need such a great saviour. And faith says a great saviour has come and you can put your trust in him. And there is well enough that's been spoken about him that you can have faith in him. You don't need to go up into heaven and have him come down to you again personally and meet you. You don't need to go and see him die and rise again for you personally. Because he's already done that. It's already happened. He goes on. But what does it say? Verse 8. The word is near you in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith that we proclaim. You see what he says? We have the testimony of those who did see it happen. Their testimony has been put out there and we have that. And we can have faith in what they say because they saw it. And so, verses 9 and 10, because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. See, there's these polar extremes that we get presented with, saying you've got to know every fine detail, you've got to see it yourself, or you can't know, so just leap in faith. But they're not reasonable, okay? So why should we try and assess our faith in that particular fashion? Now, I wonder... Um, the Sydney to Hobart yacht race has concluded for the year. Uh, can anyone tell me who won the race? Sydney? No, no, no. 
that's, um, that, that's, not, that's not how it works, Chris. No. Uh, there was a yacht called Ichiban. Have you no? Ichiban went on handicap, did it? Oh, there you go. Uh, okay, so it wasn't the outright winner. Was that Wild Oats? No, it wasn't Wild Oats. They didn't race. Anyway, Ichiban won on handicap. Thank you, Jan. Now, how do you know that, Jan? Oh, so you weren't, you didn't see the boats take off. So you don't even know there was a race. Or do you? Okay. Because it's okay, isn't it? Because that's a corroboration. People have seen it and others can, and the story, if it wasn't true, if there was no race, we would have known. So Ichiban was the winner on handicap. What about last year? Who won the, the previous year's race? Does anyone know that one? Was there a race last year? Hey? There was no race. How do you know that, Emma? Someone told you. Oh, the media told you, did they, Emma? And you believed them, did you? Of course you did, because it's, you can actually look into it and verify it. And with your phone, you can probably Google in a second and find out there was no 2020 Sydney to Hobart race. Well done, Emma. Sorry for making fun of you. That was 100% correct. And what if I told you that in 2019, Comanche was the line honours winner? Anyone believe that? You might think I'm trying to fool you, so you might be sus about it, and so you might want to check it for yourself. And in fact, I think they either won the line honours or the handicap, one or the other, but it doesn't matter. What I'm trying to say is that when we make statements, we can actually corroborate those statements. If we declare something happened, you can look it up and find out. Now, that's how we should approach faith. You can't just take a leap in the dark, believe in anything, because that's what you'll end up believing in. Whatever. It's not good enough, okay? But you can't demand to see it all for yourself. The Bible is written over thousands of years of history. No one's lived that long. No one can go over thousands of years and tell you all the events themselves. And yet people have seen it and recorded it and their testimony has been corroborated by others. And we're happy with that in other spheres of life and we should be happy with that here. And that should be satisfactory proof for us to go, yes, this is more than legit. And so in verse 11 to 13, for the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame for there is no distinction between Jew and Greek for the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. These beautiful words, aren't they? Because the assurance we then have is, if, if, if what's been said is true, then we, can be, we know that we are saved and we can have that confidence in our hearts that we will be saved. Now, that's actually something that's worth pausing on there uh, because it's important to know that we are saved. But it's more than important to know that we are saved. It's important to live that we are saved as well. It's one thing to say we believe in something. It's yet another thing to live it out. Uh, who's this guy? It's Harry from Harry and the Hendersons. I think it is. You're right. Um, it's the Yeti, obviously. Um, lots of sight- sightings of the Yeti or the Yowie in Australia. That's what it is, isn't it, Brent? It's the same. It is the same movie, right? Harry and the Hendersons. Yeah, I think it is too. Okay, we'll move on. Um, I digress. Um, there's, there's people who, who have set out to scientifically prove that the Yeti exists, okay? And they've been collecting footprints and pictures and videos and DNA samples. And the DNA samples were put into tests. Now, I've got to say, before we move on to them, um, when the Yeti finally gets found, I think his job has already been secured for him, okay? Uh, there are a lot, there are a lot of celebrities out there who don't want anyone to be able to get a good photo of them. They like to live their lives in anonymity, right? The Yeti is expert at this. You ever seen a photo of him? 
I mean, that's a scene from a movie. That's not a real photo of the Yeti, obviously. But the photos of the real Yeti is this blurry thing in the background. You can never get a good shot of him. He's the master of avoiding the paparazzi. Anyway, um, the DNA samples have come in, and these are the results, okay? Six black bears, two polar bears, one brown bear, four cows, four horses, four dogs, two raccoons, one Malaysian tapir, one deer, one sheep, one porcupine, one human, and one cero. Yes, one cero, which is a Japanese goat, not a yeti. Uh, now, I, I don't really care if, if Bigfoot exists or not. Who cares? It doesn't matter to me at all. But these people are passionate and desperate to prove it. It's become their life. And as yet, there's not any evidence that it's true. Now, we're the opposite. We've got a lot of corroborated testimony to have a look at here. And what we need to do is actually say, you know what? That should change who we are and what we do. We have well enough on the evidential side to go by, but we can't leave it as just some intellectual exercise, okay? We actually need to let it change our heart. Because in verse 10, for with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. Uh, when we talk about the heart in our world today, what are we talking about? Like, what, what does it govern in the human? Say again? Okay, that's a very scientific answer. Yeah, what else is it? What else do we... When you think about the heart, what is, what's, what's the point? What, what is it... That's a very oblique question without giving the answer away. What you believe? Yep. Feelings. There we are. It determines what your feelings are. That's what we say. The heart's about your feelings, okay? Now, it's important to note that in ancient Greek culture, that's not how they saw the heart, all right? They saw the feelings as coming from, does anyone know? The stomach or the bowel? That's right. They saw the feelings coming there, which makes a bit more sense. Like, if you're nervous, where do you feel nervous? In the guts, you get the butterflies in the stomach, right? It makes a bit more sense. Um, however, that's not the way we think about it. We think of the heart, okay? Um, we talk about heartache. They might have talked about bowel ache. I don't know. It doesn't sound as appealing, does it? Um, yeah, let's leave that alone. Um, I don't know if they talked about that, though. Uh, but the, for them, the heart was the core of the being. Head was for thinking. Stomach or, or gut was for feeling. And heart was all of who you are, Okay? And so here it says, with the heart one believes. We believe with all that we are. Uh, it's not an intellectual exercise, all right? It's not that. I like Sudoku puzzles. They're good fun. But they don't really change my life, I don't think. Oh, Lynn got a condescending pat from Alistair there. They do change her life. Fair enough. Uh, but they don't, they're not life-changing. You do them and that's it. You're done. It's an intellectual exercise. Oh, yeah, yeah I did it. Yeah, might make you feel better about yourself for a small time. But it doesn't really do much for you. And we cannot let our faith become that kind of thing. Just some intellectual exercise. We give it some assent mentally and then we just leave it there. It actually needs to be something that permeates all of who we are. And now I find it a bit ironic saying that this morning, given that this talk has been more of an intellectual exercise about how do we know what's real. But once we've sorted that out, what does it do for us? It's got to change who we are. It's got to change the core of our being. And it's got to change it because in verse 12, there's no distinction. Jew nor Greek, same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. God says, call, call, have faith in my son Jesus and come to my kingdom forever. Verse 13, for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. So the fact that we do know needs to change who we are. Now, that's something that we all need to work on and think through. 
Um, I've just got a couple of quick, or three quick tips for you this morning. Um, the first one is just to think about the self-narrative that we can write um, ourselves. Starts in the head and permeates how we think and feel about ourselves. And we feel like, you know what? I know that God saves. That's great. But I'm not worth being saved. I can't do anything for God. People feel that way. It's okay for someone who can play the drums. They're competent. God can use them. It's okay for someone who can do a kid's talk. They're competent. God can use them. But what can I do? Why does God care about me? I'm not as good as person Y at at this. Someone else is better than me at that. I don't fit in. I want to put it to you that I think every single person in the world finds someone who's better than them at whatever they're best at, okay? Um, That's just the way it works, okay? Um, There might be someone who's the best at something, but for how long? Who's the fastest man in the world right now? For a long time, the answer was easy. Who was it? But he ain't anymore, is he? Someone can beat him in a race, all right? Everyone who's the best at something gets beaten by someone else eventually. Is it only the fastest that God cares about? Well, no, he tells us the opposite. He says, I care for the lonely, the the downcast. Come to me. Come to my kingdom. When Jesus tells the parable of the banquet and the servant goes out to those who are important and says, come, and they say, no. He says to the servant, just go and drag them out of the bushes. Bring the destitute. It's open for anyone. Bring them. So if you feel like I'm not worth it, that's that's bad self-talk in your head because look at what Romans says. Everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. Maybe this is a verse you want to write down somewhere. Put it where you see it above your doorframe in the morning. The same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches. And you can put your name on Craig who calls on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Now, other people, um, another, that's the first takeaway. Maybe the second takeaway is this. Uh, For some of us, we uh, live in the world of ideas. um, And things are all about how stuff works together. And that's good. And that's okay. But maybe if that's more your thing, when it comes to faith, you actually might want to think about getting your hands dirty this year. What can I actually do? How do I actually move beyond ideas into practice? What can I do for God? Start praying about it. Write it down somewhere. Again, where you're going to see it, maybe put a note on your phone that comes up every morning, 7.30 a.m. What am I going to do for God this year? I've been thinking about it too long. I know I've given mental assent to it, but it hasn't changed who I am yet. What am I going to do about it? How am I going to let God use me for his glory this year. And then every day it's going to pop up, what am I doing for God this year? Or maybe another question. Maybe you're someone who does quite a few things anyway. Right? Why do I do these things? Why am I getting my hands dirty? Maybe the question for you is different. Uh, and you put in this verse again. Um, with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. And you're reminding yourself, why am I doing this? Oh, that's right, because God has saved me. That's a second tip. Here's the last one for you. Um, just start thinking about how you're going to answer the question that might get asked of you. How do I know if Christianity is real or not? Because as I've said, when you come in and you take your chair, 
you don't actually test every aspect of it, do you? Now, unless this is a trick chair, this should work. <laughs> I should be able to sit down. We just come along and we just sit in the chair, right? And it's fine. Whoa, no, it's okay. Um, it works, okay? There's a few aspects of thought that go into that. I've noticed that the chair had four legs and therefore was safe. In fact, I had sat in it before, just right down there. So I knew it was safe, okay? Um, and if someone said to me, how do you know that chair's safe? It's got four legs, should be right. What about how is Christianity real? How are you going to answer that question? Because we need to start having our answer ready in our head. You don't need to give a full proof to people because that's not required. It's okay. But you just want to say something more than, I don't know, just try and see. There's got to be something more to, that, more to it than that, right? Um, so how are you going to explain that when someone asks you? And maybe just start working on that. Maybe you could uh, make a note on your phone or just get a journal or something. Just write it down and say, how, how, what would I say to someone? Now, when you find you've got 16 pages of notes, just turn the next page and start again and try and get it down to a paragraph. It might just be you telling your story. This is what it means to me. Because we believe and we call on his name to be saved. Now, we live in a world where people say, well, what's true for you is true for you. Uh, it's a despairing world to live in. Um, and we actually have answers for people. We just need to be able to make sure that we can articulate them in some sense. So let me pray for us that we'll be those who maybe work on our self-narrative, people who get our hands dirty or have some kind of answer about why we believe. Let me pray for us that we can do that because faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. Dear God, we thank you for these words of yours and we thank you that we don't need Christ to come down and appear to us personally or to be raised from the dead in front of our face, or even to raise him up ourselves. We thank you so much that there is the testimony of those corroborated by others who have seen these things, that they were prophesied years and years and thousands of years, hundreds and thousands of years in advance. We thank you that we can have confidence in that. And so, Father, help us now be those who, as we believe in him, have confidence that we will not be put to shame because we know that your kingdom is open to us and we long for it in Jesus' name. Amen.